Hey everyone, welcome to episode 103 of F-Stop, Collaborate, and Listen. This week's guest is Montana-based landscape photographer Chuck Haney. Chuck has been shooting for over 25 years, and so we talked a lot about the evolution of the craft of photography over that time span and how he was able to successfully transition into the digital era. We also talked about post-processing ethics, Nampa, and a lot more. So stay tuned. Over on Patreon this week, Chuck and I talked a lot about what it's like to live in northern Montana and what it's like to be a photographer there. So check that out over on Patreon. <clears throat> so before we get started, I wanted to take a quick minute to uh, reintroduce you to another one of our uh, podcast patrons, Anton Everine. He created an amazing luminosity masking panel called Arc Panel. If you've listened to earlier episodes, you'll likely remember that his luminosity masking panel is very easy to use and it's super intuitive. I really, really like it myself. He's recently made it easier to sign up. You no longer need to include your email address. And he's also giving 50% discounts to anyone who will write a review or a post about Arc Panel. You can learn more about this on the liner notes for the podcast, and you can try the Arc Panel for free on his website at arcpanel.averine.photo. That's A-V-E-R-I-N dot photo. I also have a couple free copies left to give away to the listeners. So to get one, just share a post about the podcast on your social media account and send me a note about your post. Okay. I also want to take a quick moment to tell you about one of my absolute favorite nature photography platforms, Nature Photographers Network, or NPN. You may remember episode 77, where I had a great conversation with NPN's new owners and podcast patrons, David Kingham and Jennifer Renwick, as well as some of our friends, including Alex Noriega and, and, and Ron Coscarosa. And we were talking about the relaunch of NPN. I don't know. I think NPN is one of the greatest places on the internet for a photographer. You really should check it out. It's an amazing community designed specifically for landscape and nature photographers. There's really nothing else like it. There's also two very important features of NPN that you should check out. The first is the critique forums. This is hands down probably one of the best ways that you can improve your photography. You get really great feedback and advice from some of the best and biggest names in photography out there. And just by reading the comments on some of the other people's posts on there, you can get really cool ideas on how you can improve your photos as well. Um, another great thing about NPN that I really like are the amazing articles that are written by former podcast guests such as Guy Tao, Colleen Minnix-Berry, Eric Bennett, and many more. Uh, there was recently a really cool article about photographing uh, spring, in which I really liked. Check it out. Head on over to naturephotographers.network. All right. Well, special thanks to our incredible, amazing, fantastic Patreon supporters and podcast producers. These amazing folks contribute at the $20 a month level and higher on our Patreon page. So thank you to Michael Howard, Jack Curran, Eric Stensland, Chris Rice, Jeff Peterson, Charlotte Gibb, Jason Matias, Anton Everine, Lori Berenson, Roger Nadell, William Nurse, Ken Dono, Danny LeFrancois, 
James Bakavoy, Matthias at Photo Magica, Richard Wong, Kelly Buchelern, and Matthew Boone. All right, let's get to the show. Chuck Haney, thank you so much for joining us on F-Stop, Collaborate, and Listen. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's, uh, this is a real pleasure. It's going to be a lot of fun. Absolutely. I actually was excited. I, You were first recommended uh, to the podcast from one of our listeners named uh, Jeff. I believe his last name is Albrecht. I can't totally pronounce his name because I'm terrible at pronouncing people's names. But uh, yeah, I, he recommended you uh, and I checked out your website and I was like, wow, this guy's got some really cool stuff and he's been at it for a long time. And yeah. and I was like, man, I don't I don't think I've ever had anyone on the podcast from Montana yet either. So I don't so think that's you have. Exciting. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. I was like, and I've, I've got a trip planned for Montana coming up myself. So I was like, this could be a little bit of guilty pleasure. I could pick your brain. (laughs) Exactly. I I think I pretty much covered the entire state. So uh, yeah. Yeah. Anywhere you want to (laughs) go. That's awesome. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, you and your career. And uh, particularly, I'm really interested to learn about how your career has kind of spanned the arc of time in landscape photography and how it's changed uh, over the last 25 years. Cause I'm sure that you've seen a lot of things come and go and a lot of really great photographers come and go as well. So uh, I really just would really love to hear about kind of your perspective on that. Yeah. I mean, boy, I tell you, it's just been like, it, it's almost like, you know, I grew up on a farm uh, in a family farm. And I can just almost equate it to when I started in the photography business as to when my grandfather started farming with horses Hmm. and ended up with tractors in modern conveniences. (laughs) I mean, it's really been almost that drastic. Uh, you know, back, I started in early nineties, and, you know, back then, being a stock photographer was what it was all about. Uh, right. That was uh, the business model. And if you could go around and shoot pretty much just on a, a whim and shoot anywhere and just build up your stock files, you know, if you were good at it and persistent, you know, you had a decent chance of making some sales. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot of magazines people actually read, uh, paper, paper product. And so there was, you know, my gosh, I, you know, there, there was probably hundreds and hundreds of magazines, calendars, uh, books, things like that. And, uh, so it, you know, of course back then, you know, it was, it was a completely different genre. Film was, uh, at least slide film was so unforgiving, uh, when you went out to shoot, uh, you had to be probably more skillful than you had uh, you are today. It was just uh, sure. you couldn't be off more than a you know really a third or half of a stop with your exposures, or you basically threw the film out. It was uh, useless. <laughs> so you know you had to be good in that regard. 
And then <clears throat> getting your images published was a whole procedure as well. Uh, you know, I would come back from a shoot back then, you know, I'd come back with 60, 70 rolls of film or more. You'd wait a few more days to get the film back from the processing. Uh, for me, it was down the road in Kalispell. And uh, then it was like Christmas for several days <laughs> as I <laughs> unboxed each one, you know, and looped it and, and looked at everything. And then you had to put them in the plastic sleeves. I typed all the caption info and gave them all names and numbers and had to apply little labels onto each one of the slides. Oh, wow. Uh, so, I mean, you, you stood over a light table for days uh, after a big shoot. Uh, and then you set submissions out to clients. Uh, you had to catalog everything, which took time. Mail it. You had all these certain ways that they wanted them packaged, everything. You didn't want to, you know... Uh, you wanted to make it easy for them. So uh, sending all that off, you'd send all your best images off and you might not see them again for months. Uh, and, <laughs> were, yeah, were those or, your, only, or, your only copies of them? Sometimes. So, yeah. I mean, as I progressed, I learned to shoot duplicates uh, in camera. Uh, so I could uh, send them out to multiple places because a lot of times you had one great shot yeah, like I said, if you set it off, you might not get it back for six months and you had to beg to get it back. <laughs> uh, but, you know, all, doing all that and then logging them all back in and logging them back out. Uh, it was a that was a full time gig just doing that. Yeah. And so I think that really weeded out uh, people who actually did this, tried to do this to make a living. Right. Because it, it was not easy. Yeah, I remember <clears throat> at one point early on in my career, which started in like, the, don't hate me, but like 2010-ish, uh -huh. um, I had purchased a book about, um, I don't remember the title, but it was basically like how to get your, um, it was almost like a catalog of places that you could publish photos in. And it was just an index of all of these magazines and books um, and companies that you could submit photos to. And I was taken aback by how not digital friendly a lot of them sounded at the time. You know, it was like right. a lot of them even still referenced film and submitting your negatives. And I was like, okay, what about digital files? And they're like, submit them on a CD. And I'm just like, how about you just let me Dropbox them to you? You know, <laughs> it's just amazing. Like, there's no wonder that the print industry uh, kind of, they, a lot of them just didn't keep up with the technology, it seems like. And a lot of photographers as well. Yeah. I'm curious to hear you about know, that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, guys that I grew up, uh, my contemporaries, that, you know, that I knew of, uh, you know, regionally or in Montana up here, um, you know, a lot of them, they were my age or a little older, probably. And a lot of them have just fallen off by the wayside. Uh, a, they didn't, you know, embrace the switch over from uh, film to digital very well. And then, you know, the second part of it was just getting proficient at Photoshop and marketing yourself in a completely new way. Right. And, you know, that's something that still can, uh, is kind of evolving. Uh, 
and it's even harder for me to keep up. Uh, thank God I have uh, a roster of clients that I've worked with for years who know that they're getting good quality images from me. So I still get plenty. I still make more stock sales than I'm, uh, I'm surprised how, how much I do make yet, to be honest. Because <laughs> I, I just came back from the Nampa Summit uh-huh. in uh, Vegas. And uh, oh my gosh, it was it's kind of gloom and doom with the stock business uh, for everybody. So, uh, you know, nowadays, you know, I mean, like, I'm just not, I'm not good at social media. I have a somewhat of a presence, but, you know, somebody who's in their 20s or 30s would run circles around me in that regard. So um, I'm just kind of, you know, it's just with the same thing with shooting technique. It's just a, and it's kind of fun. Uh, photography's a, kind of been a, a an evolution ever since the last fifty years, really. If you think about it, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, I mean, things have constantly improved and changed. Um, sometimes for the better, and you know, sometimes not. But uh, <laughs> well, what would you attribute um, your ability to successfully uh, transition? Um, from from the film era to the digital era, like what? Did, how did you, how did you survive that? Yeah, I mean, so I had uh, in my office probably around two thousand and three or four. That's when you know I think that, that was the, probably about the era when digital finally I think got to the same quality as thirty five millimeter film. Uh, so that's when I made the switch. So I I mean I had like. Gosh, I must have had 80,000 transparencies and folders <laughs> in my office. So I had you know, like stacks and stacks of uh, file cabinets. So um, I spent a few years scanning uh, my film. Yeah. So I could have them, you know, to transition to having a web presence and sending stuff uh, online. And I learned really early on too, like I made my web website searchable mm-hmm. and I think I was kind of ahead of the curve on that. And uh, so I had clients that could go into my website and make light boxes and search and then tell me, oh, I want these 50 images for some project. And uh, that that really smoothed out the transition for me. And then, you know, of course, I started shooting digitally, uh, I think it was 2004 full time. And uh, I've just kind of rode it out since then and just, you know, new cameras come out and, you know, techniques have changed. And, you know, for me, it's been in that regard as far as shooting, it's been like a, it's been so inspirational and fun that. I'm able to do things that I only dreamed about back back when I started. Right. You know, with the F or, you know, mostly with ISO. Uh, back then you were shooting 100 speed for almost for everything. Because even 200 feet speed film kind of sucked. <laughs> and, you know, it was grainy. And uh, I mean, like I shot a basketball tournament. Uh, I write too, so I... I I always wanted to be a sports writer, so I, I got a gig doing uh, some stories for Montana Magazine on the uh, high school basketball, and I had to shoot that with 800 speed print film, 
And I found a lab in Bozeman that would push it to 1600. <laughs> even that, even then it was, it was very tricky, you know, yeah. to get good shots. So now, I mean, I went back and did the same thing. Um, I think two years ago and, you know, now I'm shooting at 3,200 and I'm not even using flash anymore. And, uh, it was, it was amazing. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, and I see you have a lot of people who shoot nighttime stuff and I see you do as well. You know, back then there's just no way you could get like Northern lights or star shots that were any good right. uh, at all. So that's, I mean, that's opened up, um, uh, I, I told my friends who uh, run tours in Iceland, <laughs> the advent of digital photography probably opened up, a, you know, their entire tourism industry. I think that's true. Absolutely. People start seeing those shots. Yeah. You know, and they're like, oh, I got to go there. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm curious. Do you see anything coming on the horizon um, either from the marketing perspective or the technology side that would be similar to the film to digital era? Because I feel like, I feel like the digital, I feel like we've kind of tapped out of what the digital, you know, what it can do for the most part, at least for still photography. I know video still has a little bit to go, but yeah, I, I wonder like, what's the next thing on the horizon that people need to adapt to? Yeah. You know, I get asked, uh, still about, you know, like marketing advice, younger photographers, uh, ask me and I don't know if I'm the person to answer that, uh, you know, just with the social media, uh, I'm just not really into it that much. Yeah. You know, I mean, I know it's a necessary evil, so I do some, you know, and I do, you know, like a, a marketing newsletter that works really well for me. But um, as far as like equipment and stuff, I think uh, the next big thing is really going to be uh, cameras will be shooting, I don't know, what, 8K video, and you'll just be able to pull out stills. <laughs> so, I mean, from, I mean, for action stuff, that could be incredible. No doubt. I mean, what are you shooting? Like 60 frames a second? Right. <laughs> you know? I mean, for sports photographers, you can't miss the shot. Yeah, that's a good point. I've always wondered that. I mean, you think about like watching your television on a sporting event, like you could just pause the TV and like, there you have a still right. image. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I think that, I mean, that's probably the next big thing. Yeah. With that cameras. Makes sense. Yeah. Wow. I mean, the, and, you know, they're probably just going to get better with ISO and, dynamic range you know all the stuff we do in photoshop now with uh I, i'm sure you do this too you know you take multiple exposures and blend them together uh that should probably be all done in camera in the future cameras i mean i think we're almost there honestly um, like the mm -hmm. nikon d850 and this you know the sony a7r3 sony. like yeah. the the pretty much um i mean what is it like I don't know, 15 stops of dynamic range now. I mean, it's pretty ridiculous. Right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that, that, that's incredible. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'm just looking forward to the day when uh, somebody can light, just light a lighter in a dark room. And I mean, you could just shoot it with, uh, you know, I mean, ISO 12,000 or something. I mean, 
you probably can do that now. You but, can uh, actually. I mean, yeah, it's grainy, yeah. but you definitely can do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, one of the one of the things I was super curious about, um, and you'll have to bear with me as I kind of fumble through this question, but uh, you know, I see a lot of, um, I guess I don't know if the right word is angst or um, conflict between kind of the older guard of photography, you know, people like yourself that, you know, shot film for a while and like you really had to perfect the image in the field and there wasn't a ton of stuff you could do to make it different in post. I mean, of course, we've always had dodging and burning and things of that nature in film, but, you know, you didn't have tools at your disposal like we do now where you can completely manipulate an image um, to make it look com- make the scene look completely different like people do nowadays. Um, yeah. And I see a lot of conflict between kind of the newer guard of people that started out in digital and have always shot digital versus people that uh, started out in film and have transitioned to digital. And an example I saw the other day that uh, kind of reminded me of this was uh, a guy that I follow. He, he likes to, um, for lack of a better term, he likes to kind of stretch uh, digitally stretch his mountains to make them look pointier, you know? Oh, really? And uh, that's a pretty common thing you see nowadays where people are, you know, they're using Photoshop to, you know, do a little perspective blend or, uh, you know, just distort the image to make, to make mountains look a little bigger. And, uh, and, uh, and an older photographer, uh, like called him out and was like, why are you stretching these mountains? They don't look like that. And uh, he didn't understand why he was so upset about it. And I kind of had to explain to him like, look, that guy started out in photography when you couldn't do that kind of stuff. And like the photo was kind of pure and true. So I'm curious kind of what your take is on all of that as someone who's kind of lived through both eras. And I know you, you do Lightroom and Photoshop now. So kind of yeah. how what do you how do you see that conflict and where do you kind of stand in that yeah i don't know if we're like uh like older school guys are like despondent about it or anything but you know i mean there there should be some truth in photography in my opinion as far as like if you're gonna do things like stretch mountains or add things to your shots or something. At least you should disclose it sure. and be honest about it because you're really just, at least with landscapes and nature, um, you're really just cap- trying to capture what it looked like and translate that to the viewership. Yeah. So it should be honest as possible. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm not above, removing a like a power line or (laughs) you know like i've taken shots on the beach in florida and taken the people out of it you know i mean so i'm not against all that totally but you know i'm just not into like uh, fake skies um you know that does kind of burn me when i see like there'll be there'll be ads on facebook about you know some tool that you know you can make this mundane shot look like it was shot at sunset or something and i'm like you know there's still there still needs to be uh some relevance or some truth behind the images just so they're believable i i, I try i really i mean 
I strive to keep mine realistic as possible. Um, of course, you know, I'm going to do contrast and all that to make it look a little sharper, but uh, I'm not going to add sky, like a sky to it or, uh, you know, there's a lot of different things I guess you can do. I mean, a good example is when HDR first came out, <laughs> there was a program called Photomatics, I think. I love Photomatics. Oh, my God. When I, I could spot them the second I saw them, you know, and I'm like, boy, if it doesn't look like it was taken on the earth, it probably <laughs> shouldn't be published, you know? I mean, it was just a, a little bit too much over the top. And, you I'll know, say, I, every I used, photo I took in 2011 looked like that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I, yeah, I mean, it's, I guess it's just a different genre or something, but uh, it, it, it should look realistic because, you know, I think the thing that we could fall into, and it might be already happening, is when you do get a fantastic shot, say it's the, you're up at 5 a.m., the sky goes completely red above the mountains, uh you know, I've even overheard people where I've had photos hanging in a gallery, you know, say, oh, he photoshopped. He he, he must have added that color to it. And I, you know, I kind of bite my tongue and say, you know, like, you know, I was up at 5 a.m. It, it looked like that for like seven minutes and then it went away, you right. know. So we kind of risk losing uh, credibility as a genre. You know, I mean, like if you're a newspaper photographer even today, if you'd remove a rock uh, from a photo and give it to your editor, you're going to get fired. Mm-hmm. And right and rightfully so, because if you can't believe what you see, how, you know, it's just going to create doubt uh, or lack of credibility down the road. So uh, I think there should be some morally ethical standard, though. I mean, you know, you should, there's definitely a different genre for uh making these wild looking landscapes and uh, as long as you're truthful about it you know it's no big deal but yeah what would you say what would you say about the argument that people often use that um it's art and art shouldn't have any boundaries and um well i don't disagree with that i mean uh i you know you, I, you see a lot of i guess it's uh composites or uh, and, and I think it's really cool. You know, it's just a different, it's just yeah. a jo- different genre. So if you just categorize it as that, I think it's fine. Yeah. It's just don't pass it off as like, oh, that's the way it really looked. <laughs> you know, I mean, for saturation levels on plus 50, uh, you know, it, it really wasn't quite that vivid. You got to be, you got to be cautious about that, I, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like, uh, I don't know, the best analogy I've heard recently was from my friend Michael, and he said it was, it's, it's almost like if you were uh, uh, trying to call yourself a sculptor and you took a picture of a sculpture and you said, look at my sculpture. It's right. like, no, you're a photographer. <laughs> like, right. it's, it's okay to say you're a photographer, um, but don't call yourself a sculptor. You, you didn't actually sculpt that. It's, I don't know. It's, um, it's, I an mean, inter- <laughs> you know, another good equivalent to that, say you're a wildlife photographer who prides himself in taking wild photos. Mm-hmm. And then you're competing against people who use 
game farms. Or just go to the zoo. <laughs> or go to the zoo. And, and and they don't even, you know, if they don't uh, announce or say that that's a captive animal, I can see where the wildlife photographer would be pissed off about it. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Because they're working hard to get, you know, uh, a photo of something in the wild. There's something to be said about that. Same thing, I think, with landscape photography. Uh, it should be... Uh, somewhat true if you're marketing as uh, being a landscape photographer. If you want to uh, go over the top with it, then it should be a, you should have a separate category on your website. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's the solution. It's interesting. Um, one of the things that a friend of mine recently told me um, that his his idea about this has nothing to do with art and has nothing to do with real or fake. It's more about um, being uh, being a, a good representation of the experience that you had. So, and I think that's a really interesting way to think about it because if you if you think about it, we don't experience uh, nature at sixteen millimeters or thirty five or two hundred mm-hmm. millimeters. But there's things we can do in Photoshop with a sixteen millimeter lens and a you know, 80 millimeter lens or whatever to make a scene look more real. Like you can actually, you know, put a 60 millimeter moon into a 35 millimeter scene. And right. if it looks more true to the way that you experienced it, mm-hmm. right. then that's probably to me, like that feels more okay than mm-hmm. someone that, I don't know, like puts a, 400 millimeter moon in a 16 millimeter shot just because they think it looks cool. I, I don't right. know. Well, that would be, I mean, at least to our trained eye, I mean, that's pretty obvious that that would have been done, but you're right. Uh, something more subtle like that, uh, I think is fine because you're, you know, you really, at the end of the day, you just want uh, it to look like, yeah, you saw it. Right. And, and that's the important part. Um you know, I mean, I do tricks like uh, focus stacking and, sure. you know, I mean, what I just want it to look as sharp and crisp and, I, you know, to bring the viewer into it. I think um, at least with like wide angle photography, that's like the coolest thing ever. I mean, the highest compliments I've gotten over the years is, you know, a lot of folks have said, oh, I, I felt like I was there. You know, yeah. when I view the picture, like I was standing right there. So if you can convey that feeling to that that morning or whatever, that evening or wherever you were at, uh, that's about as good as you can do. Yeah, I feel I feel like whenever people say something like that, it feels really great. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. That's like the highest compliment, I think. <laughs> Although... <laughs> I guess if you value someone's compliment that something looks out of this world and you think that's a, I don't know, I guess it just depends on what your values are. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, if you go to a, say a gallery in New York city with paintings, I mean, look how many different styles there are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, photography could be, rendered into many different genres as well so yeah yeah i I think it's all good just keep shooting (laughs) (laughs) drink more beer keep shooting yeah it's a good motto to live by (laughs) 
so you know like a lot most people know me as a, a you know a landscape photographer but boy you know when i first started i shot as much bicycling uh, as i did landscapes and i still shoot just a a why I, I i shoot way more variety i think than most photographers do um you know, I've had a whole book on barns. Uh, I did a ton of agriculture photography early on. And, uh, you know, who would have thought, you know, I, I, I photographed tractors and barns and uh, <laughs> it did quite and did quite well with it. And uh, but I did a ton of bicycling stuff. Uh, I write for Adventure Cyclist magazine. And uh, so I still go out and do several features a year for them. Oh, and right. I had my own, I, I had my own mountain bike calendar for years, and uh, so that that that's been fun. Just shooting this, just a wide variety of subject. So, yeah, one of our listeners uh, posted a question for you on our Facebook group. His name is Lon Smith, and it's very timely. You brought this up. He he said one thing I noticed is that his work is very diverse. One question that popped into my mind, how does he choose between landscape, wildlife, cityscape, etc.? Does he go through phases focused on a specific type of photography or maybe just go with inspiration as it hits in the moment? That's a, that's a great question. Um, I've often wondered that myself. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, maybe I just have short attention. Short, I have short attention span. I don't. I don't know, but... Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of interest. And, uh, you know, I think early on, you know, like I knew with photography, you just have to photograph what you're passionate about. And maybe I have a lot of passions because, uh, you know, like last week I went over to, uh, we have a, a bird migration on the east side of the Rockies, about three hour drive away. And I go over every spring. It's amazing. You know, you'll get like, Sometimes up to a hundred thousand snow geese in a, oh, a day through there, I was gonna ask and a lot, of, and a lot of other species of birds. And I love it because it's challenging. You know, it's much different. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm always, you know, like I play guitar too, and I'm always looking to improve my technique. Uh, I think I do the same thing with photography because you know, like I don't know. I started going to San Francisco about ten years ago just on vacation, you know, and I'm like, oh, it's so cool here. It's like, <laughs> I love all the architecture and the bridges and yeah. the, the hills and all that. And I just started shooting it. And for, you know, I'm like, man, I, you know, like I'm kind of digging this uh, blue light, you know, dusk photography stuff with the lights. And yeah. uh, I was just like kind of hooked and I translated that into an entire coffee table book. So I went up. <laughs> You know, I went over there for like two and a half weeks and sh had this huge list. And every day I had a mission to shoot here, here, and here. Next day, here, here, here in the city. And that had to be one of the most fun and fascinating uh, projects I did. And then like two weeks later, I'm back home sh shooting a high school basketball tournament because there's a really good player. I mean, I just, I just kind of go with what I like, the things that I dig, you know, and it's worked. It's worked out well for me. That's interesting because um, I don't know if this resonates with any other listeners, but uh, I I find myself um, if I shoot too much, like I just get really burned out in 
I don't know, my maybe my my shutter finger gets tired or something, but I just mm-hmm. I feel like I need time in between photo shoots to kind of regenerate my creative juices or or just uh regenerate my interest in photography altogether. I don't know if that's normal or 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 maybe you're no i think it's pretty i mean it what if you got a job say taking pictures of uh like senior pictures or something real static every day i couldn't last five minutes uh but when i go to like new places now i'm still like uh i have this enthusiasm like yes uh, i went to ireland for the first time last fall beautiful i was like a kid in a candy store for two weeks you know i mean like uh yeah it was so amazing. So now I'm taking a workshop group and going back over again. But, you know, it was just like stuff like that really still gets me excited. Yeah, definitely. I feel like new places, I feel like that is one of the ways that I get really, at least when I get there, I'm like, oh, wow, this is really cool. Because I, I just went and photographed uh, southern Utah and a little bit of northern Arizona for the first time. Um, about two weeks ago and yeah I was the same way I was like oh my gosh this is so cool because I'd never shot anything like that quite like that before Um, I've shot a little in New Mexico but this was just totally different and yeah it's same thing like your mind just starts going crazy with ideas and um, so yeah maybe it's just a matter of diversifying what you are super interested in or or choosing locations that might be different than what you're normally used to shooting yeah you know i mean like having a set of fresh eyes is invaluable yeah i mean yeah i mean it's just i think anytime anything if you think about your whole life anything you've done for the first time and it was cool you always remember that and you're always excited about it so it's not it's not mundane at all and you know i mean i could say that about my whole career i mean uh, I have to pinch myself sometimes to think uh, how I ended up here and uh, <laughs> was able to, you know, make a, a career out of this and just have this fantastic lifestyle. I, I, I'm pretty spoiled now. I don't know if I could ever go back <laughs> to being a regular job, you know? Yeah. And I wonder too, um, kind of going back to what we started with, I mean, I, I wonder sometimes if, if, if that reality is, as accessible today as a photographer as it was say 20 years ago oh that's a good question oh man i i struggle with that um i think you know there probably still is i wouldn't say no because you know you see examples of it a lot of these younger guys are savvy with this uh their marketing technique and they, they take amazing pictures so I think as long as you still have the desire and can sacrifice a little bit uh, and hold true, yeah, yeah, I think there's there's certainly, I think there's always going to be a, a, a demand for good images and maybe even images that are out of out of the way, like not in such familiar locations. Because uh, what I think I see is um, the people I still work with, they still are looking for quality images from places that aren't so heavily photographed. Mm-hmm. And as stock photography kind of dies out, 
there's just not going to be people going to, let's say, eastern Montana or North Dakota or all these places that aren't so well known. They're just not going to go there to shoot and shoot it for stock. I mean, most people are going to the well, more well-known places. So it's going to be harder and harder for people to find good quality images from lesser known places, I think. So if people, st- st- I mean, that's the way I approached it 25 years ago. I think it'll still work. Uh, I really got my big break by going to like Eastern Montana in North Dakota. Because hmm. I knew uh, we had a great magazine at the time, uh, Man- Montana Magazine. And if you could get in there, that was a big feather in your cap. And they had always had trouble finding stuff from eastern side of the state, <laughs> more remote prairie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like you know, it's not it's not hit you over the head dramatic like say the Tetons or Glacier or Yellowstone. So I started going over there early in my career and doing a lot of bicycling stuff over there. And I mean, I got my first coffee table book because they knew I had coverage from eastern side of the state and then i started doing north dakota and i had amazing success i have um i think five coffee table books from north dakota and yeah and zero competition those (laughs) books right i i sold more i sold three print runs of my first north dakota coffee table book and believe it or not there's actually people that live in north dakota that would buy them yeah, they are, and they give them to their relatives. <laughs> exactly. <found> <laughs> and so, I mean, that was that was a very good lesson for me. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. You know, a gazillion, who needs another shot of elk in Yellowstone, right? Uh, you got to go places where it's not so well-known, and it's just, it's beautiful if you're there in great light, you know? It's- yeah, I got, so I, I grew up in um, the front range of Colorado, which, you know, most of the time people equate that to at the foot of the Rocky mountains, but, um, you know, to the East, there's this vast, you know, plains area. And I think there's a lot of undiscovered, really interesting stuff out in the plains. I'm curious, what was it like for you photographing in the great plains in Eastern Montana? Like what were, what are some of the, uh, kind of scenes and or subjects or, um, like what is kind of the gist of what the types of things you would find out there that you found uh, moving to you as a nature photographer? I got to say, I think, uh, you know, I like all ecosystems, but the Great Plains or the prairies might be my favorite. And I say that because, you know, uh, being in the mountains, a lot of times, you know, the sun might come up at 6 a.m., but by the time it gets over the mountains and strikes your subject might be an hour or two later out on a prairie. That's not an issue. And you get this amazing light because it's just coming up unblocked over the horizon. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's a lot of fascinating landscapes, um, a lot of rivers and prairie grasslands, and there's still a lot of wildlife and birds over there. I mean, uh, and more accessible, to be honest. Uh, a lot of places, they're not so, they're more acclimated mm-hmm. to people, I think. And I just, uh, uh, 
And, you know, like there's Badlands over there. I've, I've done a lot of stuff in the Badlands. Mm. Like I love Teddy Roosevelt National Park in North Dakota, uh, which is, in my opinion, the second best national park in the entire country for wildlife, right? You know, behind wow. Yellowstone, probably. Uh, there's bison, there's prairie dogs, there's elk, uh, white mule deer, uh, lots of birds, uh, and just a lot, you know, they're everywhere in these very cool landscapes. And, you know, I tend to go over in uh, June, and when it greens up over there, it's kind of reminiscent of Ireland, actually, with <laughs> this, these rolling hills, and uh, they're just beyond belief green, and a lot of wildflowers. Uh, and, you know, like, it's very therapeutic and peaceful and zen to, to shoot over there because you have it all to yourself most of the time. Yeah, I was going to say one of the benefits of shooting in a location like that, I feel like, is that there's not a lot of people there. Exactly. It's, you know, more reminiscent of maybe what it looked like, you know, back in the day. Uh, you know, you, you got to find the spots, but they're still there. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, and the other thing is you get these super cool thunderstorms coming. Oh, yeah, man. I love that. I mean, uh, I've always said landscape photographers love a good thunderstorm. <laughs> I mean, Absolutely. You know, I mean photographing lightning uh and then just these I, I some of the shots i've gotten especially in like teddy roosevelt and places i mean it looks eerie because it was just like the clouds i mean it's hard to describe uh, all the color that happened near sunset while there's lightning and rainbows and stuff going off at the same time yeah and you can uh, even do some really cool time lapse work as well Right. And yeah, and I've done that. And uh, yeah, I've had some really great experiences over there. Uh, I took a, a group, of, I had a, a workshop there with all ladies. And I took them out the last morning of the workshop uh, to the Little Missouri River. And we were standing there on the riverbank and there was some fog, you know, and the sun was starting to come up. And I said, wouldn't it be cool if a bison crossed the river? <laughs> you know, just just kind of threw that out there, right? And literally within five minutes, here came a bison. I'm like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> it's like you. And it's before like you, you knew it, there were there were bison in front of us on the river, there were bison on the other side of us crossing the river, all right at first light. Oh, like man. the entire herd crossed the river on both sides of yeah, on both sides of us. Oh, so it must have been three or four hundred head. And uh <laughs> we shot for like 20 minutes. So I was just going crazy, shooting video, everything, you know. And absolutely finally, you know, like we looked on the hill behind us and there was like a 10 or 20 of them standing up there just looking at us. And I'm like, I think it's time to get out of here. <laughs> so we left and I couldn't believe it. As soon as we left, the bison came down the hill and walked right over where we were at and crossed the river, just like they were waiting on us. And yeah. that was like, it was an incredible, I told his ladies, like, that just doesn't happen like that every day. You know, that was an incredible circumstance, right place, right time. And something that could have happened for like the last 10,000 years. You just happened to be there to see it. And yeah. uh, 
So, you know, that kind of stuff. And then like I've, I've been in a blind in um, the Sandals of Nebraska and watch prairie chickens. Uh, oh, on, yeah. On a calm morning. If, you know, I, they were so close. I, I couldn't even use my 600 millimeter lens. I just switched to a wider lens and uh, they were just, you know, sparring and they had no idea. I was like literally three feet from them. And uh, I was like, wow, to witness stuff like that uh, is just pure magic. Right. Yeah, that's cool. My mom's like a really big uh, birder and she took a trip to i think nebraska last year to try to find prairie chicken <laughs> yeah there's a great ranch up in the sand hills uh you can do uh prairie chickens and uh the grouse and and then you know of course you got the sandhill cranes a little further south uh, oh yeah i did what? that i did that several times too just to see it you know and it was like i i made a little movie about it it was a yeah, I actually uh, took some time and watched uh, the, the the videos that you have on your website. And uh, one of them that I really enjoyed was the one where you were photographing the snow geese in spring. And uh, I think that was in eastern Montana. Well, that, that's the one I was just telling you I went over last week for. Yeah. Yeah, just east and, of the mountains here. And I was, um, I don't know, I just... I could just tell by the way you were talking and and how excited you were. You just have this uh, this super innate passion for nature and 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 photographing it. And I just it just I don't know. It just made me happy. I was really happy to see that. And I was curious, um, what, what do you attribute that uh, that joy and happiness of nature to? Like, what 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 do you what what causes that for you? You know, I think it was probably early on, you know, so I grew up on a farm in Ohio and uh, surrounded by corn and beans and all that. But we did have uh, woods and my dad was an outdoorsman, you know, he hunted and trapped and and uh, fished. And uh, so I grew up around that. But I would often uh, when I needed some time alone, I remember I would walk across a plowed field cross the railroad tracks and there would be this woods with a pond and I would just sit there and watch birds or muskrats. And it was just, I don't know. I just loved being kind of in the woods with the, with the animals. And I also, the other thing was I, you know, I had to get up early to do chores. (laughs) Like I had, (laughs) I had animals to feed myself. So uh, I was always up super early before school and I always just really loved that time of day. Like it was so peaceful and calm because Ohio got windy a lot. And uh, I was just like, man, it's just just watching that, that glow from the sun, even at an early age, uh, really kind of struck to me. So I, I'm not surprised I ended up uh, finding this as a, a profession. I mean, I had no idea. Um, even in my early twenties, uh, I left Ohio and I, I went to school for sound engineering and I moved to Los Angeles to work in a sound studio. Oh, okay. uh, music is my other passion. And, uh, it, I bought, that's when I bought my first camera actually, uh, it was right before the 84 Olympics, uh, that were in Los Angeles. And I remember it was the first, uh, auto, I think it was. 
what was it? AE1, Canon AE1. It was the brand. And it was the first camera that could do auto exposure. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I don't see how those guys did it in the old days, especially like with the autofocus. I mean, can you imagine being a wildlife photographer back then and manually focusing moving subjects with 100 speed film? Right. Oh, my God. Everything would be blurry. <laughs> uh, yeah, no kidding. I, I, I've, I've had a lot of those. Yeah, even with good equipment, my shots are still blurry. <laughs> yeah, it's up, so yeah, I get a lot of people, oh, your shots are so great. And I'm like, yeah, but you don't see the ones that throw away. Right, exactly. There's like, for every yeah. good one, there's like six bad ones, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, that's the, that was the, when you're talking about making the switch, that's probably the greatest thing of all. Because back then you had to, you always had that in the back of your mind. Like every time you click the shutters, cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. Because, you know, because it costs money for the film and it costs money for the processing. Now, once you get the card, I mean, it's like you just fire away. I mean, I only keep like really like 5 to 8% of what I shoot. Right. I mean, I just shoot a lot and then figure it out later when I get home, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I like that approach. That's cool. Yeah, I, I think I feel like I have more of a film approach. Uh, I, I usually shoot a lot less, and I hope to have about like twenty five percent keeper rate. <laughs> that's that's a lofty goal most of the time. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I have so much stock already. It really has to be something special or different for me to even consider keeping it. Yeah, so do you feel like uh, stock still has a significant place in the marketplace or in terms of what photographers should be focusing energy on? Not really. No. <laughs> I don't think I don't think so. I mean, it's totally changed my uh, itinerary or plans for a year. I mean, I'm not going to go someplace and spend a couple thousand bucks on a photo shoot and hope I get you know, pennies on the dollar for what I used to get. So mm-hmm. it's probably harder for me because I, you know, came from that era where, you know, you could do that. Uh, so now when I go out on longer trips, it's either a workshop or an assignment or some kind of project. Then I don't, you know, then I'm fine with it. But sure. just going out there blind and shooting, man, you're spending money and and then somebody calls you up. Oh, would you give us, you know, we like your stuff a lot. Can you just give us the photo? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's changed a lot in the last 10, 15 years, huh? Oh my gosh. I I think that's my least favorite part of uh, doing this. You know, I mean, you you know, you see your stuff on the internet that got pillaged somewhere or, uh, or you get these emails where, Oh yeah, you know, I, I just started a, a business. I want to promote my uh, comp, you know, product or company. And would you just let us use the photos? We'll give you a photo credit. That's like, <laughs> well, sure. Would you give your product to me for me and twenty uh, of my friends for free? Also. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I have a, I have an entire folder in my email devoted to that free photo request so i can look at it so i can look at them later and, and la- laugh about it yeah because i mean oh, i just I, you know I, I actually typed up a form letter that that tried to be nice about it right and, and just send it off uh 
So, I mean, what's the point, you know? And, and same thing with, you know, occasionally I get somebody say, oh, I see one of your images on somebody's site, you know, I'm sure enough. And I will but say, I, I, I don't, it's don't go out and track it down anymore. It just, it's no sense raising my blood pressure over it, you know? I will say sometimes those like, hey, can I use your photo for this thing? Those things sometimes can turn into something really cool. So I, um, about, gosh, three years ago, I had a woman ask me if she could use one of my photos for a school project. Or actually, I think she wanted to use like three or four of my photos for a school project. And it was like a graphic design project where she was trying to, I don't know, like write, do do some kind of flyer or something for the city she lived in, which I happen to have a lot of photographs of. And I was like, yeah, that's cool. No problem, whatever. And then about a year later, this guy reached out to me because he was starting a new magazine and he knew about me because his friend used my photos in this school project. And now I've written like four articles for his magazine and he's used like 20 or 30 of my photos and, you know, it's paid work. So I don't know. Sometimes it can benefit, but I think you have to be kind of strategic and thoughtful about how you pick and choose those things. Oh, right. Yeah. And I mean, like I, I, I donate a lot of, um, I mean, not a lot. I mean, but you know, like people ask me respectfully, uh, and it's a non-commercial site, like an educational thing yeah, or sure. historical thing, or like a, even a fundraiser for, uh, a good cause for sure. Uh, uh, I, I have no issue with that at all. But if they're, you know, if they went for a commercial site where they're using it to right. prop, profit, it's a whole different level. And I can't believe the audacity to ask. But I guess musicians went through the same thing, right? Just yeah. a few years earlier than us. Right. So we're going through it now. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, shifting gears a little, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about a little bit was uh, you had mentioned earlier that you had just gone to a, a NAMPA conference. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure that a lot of listeners are familiar with NAMPA. Um, and I was just kind of curious if you would be willing to talk a little bit about what NAMPA stands for, what NAMPA is, and kind of what the conferences are like, and um, kind of what's what where do you see NAMPA in your life? So yeah, NAMPA is the North American Nature Photography Association. Uh, was formed, I think, in the late '80s, early '90s. I'm not quite sure of the exact date. By a lot of prolific, uh, big name landscape and wildlife photographers. Uh, it was so. It was a great idea, and it still is. Uh, they do a lot of advocacy work, a lot of rights for photographers. Um, copyright, uh, like, you know, uh, granting access to different places in national parks. They work with, you know, getting uh, insurance, a lot of great things. And so, yeah, there's, I'm not sure the exact number of members anymore, but they have these uh, summits or conferences every two years now. And, uh, you know, it's I don't know, it must have been like four or 500 photographers at this latest one. Wow. It, and a lot of a very, when I go, uh, very inspiring uh, seminars and 
talks like we had Florian Schultz. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. He's done a lot of work in Anwar, uh, Gates of the Arctic, uh, which is under threat, you know, now by uh, uh, the Trump administration. And uh, we had a, a BBC uh, video video photographer as well. And uh, just a lot of big name guys, you know, I've met like all my idols, uh, <laughs> Art Wolf, uh, Tim Fitzharris, uh, you know, guys like David Munch, the late Galen Rao, who was a big inspiration to me. And uh, I met John Shaw this this year at the conference, which he's, that was a real treat. Uh, when I started, uh, you know, when I started to really, this is how dated I am. There really wasn't even hardly any internet. Right. So I learned everything by buying outdoor photography magazine. Uh, that's where I learned almost everything. Like Gail and Raul had a great uh, uh, column every month. And then I bought John. John Shaw was the first guy who had, he had a whole series of these books, like how to take better pictures, how to make, how to market and easy to read, understand terms. And he was a phenomenal photographer. So that's a really cool thing too. You know, you get to meet all these guys who really, you know, as a photographer, you should look up to the guys who were before you, right? Uh, they paved the way for the rest of us. And uh, so <clears throat> that's been super great uh, meeting them. And I come out inspired as hell and uh, I always learn a few new tricks or two and you get to, you know, you, the, the best thing is also you get to meet a lot of people in the industry face to face. Right. And that was always a key for me to make it as a, <clears throat> a stock photographer because I made a point of stopping in and meeting uh, people who were publishers and, and talking to them and getting a personal relationship with them. So you, you can do a lot at that at, at these summits as well. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great organization and uh, they do, you know, they do scholarships for college kids and uh, yeah, I can't say enough good things about them. That's awesome. What, uh, what are some of the ways that people can get more involved with, with Nampa? Well, a join, <laughs> you know I mean? Uh, it's a, I think it's maybe, what is it? A hundred bucks a year for, to join, but you get a lot of perks out of it too. Uh, so if you're teaching workshops, like for me, for example, I can promote my workshops on our website. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, so, and you know, the bulk of the people that, uh, belong are not professional photographers. They're just, uh, interested in amateurs. So that that's good from that perspective, and uh, you can get like uh, better rates on camera insurance and liability insurance, okay. uh, that kind of thing. And uh, and then they do a, they also do a, like you know workshops themselves. Uh, different people that belong to the organization do regional uh, workshops. So it's a great way to learn technique and uh, get inspired. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's funny. Uh, we'll we'll be talking more about this in the coming weeks and months in the podcast. But uh, uh, 
myself and about oh eight or so other photographers, we we decided to start a a new um, uh, photography movement uh, called Nature First, which is uh, we don't want to compete with Nampa or anything like that, but it's all about uh, finding ways to to develop some principles around how we can ethically uh, interface with the natural world and preserve it as nature photographers and, and, and promote, you know, ethical behavior uh, in, in nature. So, and I know Nampa has a lot of uh, views um, and advocacy work that they do around that. And so I can see there being a, a really cool partnership with, with Nampa and, and what we're working on. And we're, we're actually launching on Earth Day, which is coming up in about a week or so. So All right. pretty excited about that. Absolutely. That's a great idea. Um, the more of us that can send a message uh, about what's happening to our environment and the species uh, inhabit the planet, the better, right? Absolutely. And like- I mean, that's probably the best thing we can do as photographers is – draw attention to, you know, uh, what we're doing to the earth and also showing people how beautiful it can be or is. You just got to, we got to work hard to, to save that and preserve it. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword too, right? Because uh, the more you showcase a place and how beautiful it is, um, as we've seen with the, you know, the poppy fields in California recently, uh, people people want to go there and, and get pictures and and show them on Instagram and be, be influencers and get brand name recognition and all that crap. Um, it, it's a, it's a it's a challenging conundrum we find ourselves in. I think it really is. Um, I think that's part of my uh, displeasure with social media. Is, <laughs> that's definitely is, mine. It, you know, yeah. I mean, I remember. You know. If you know who David Munch is, yeah, uh, absolutely. You know Mark's dad, and uh, just a you know he was like known. I remember seeing his stuff way back in the eighties in Outdoor Photography Magazine, and he wouldn't disclose his locations a lot of times. That's uh, awesome. yeah, and I'm, I'm like you know everybody look at me. Right? You know it's just like this whole selfie thing. It's such a turnoff to me that. So many people go to these places, these beautiful places, and they're there like with the professional photographers at good light. And they stand there, take their selfie, and then they run off. I'm like, what? how did you even experience this place other than to bag it and say, I was here and you guys should that's, be here? You know, it's funny. I was, uh, I just read like, <laughs> I just yeah. recently did a trip to South Utah, like I was saying earlier. And, um, we we went to this overlook, which is relatively known now. But uh, we were it was like a group of five of us that were out there, and then um, we had shot it at sunset, and and um, and the light, you know, it was okay, whatever. And this car full of people showed up with like uh, cell phones, and like they ran out onto this rock, and like everyone took pictures of each other, and like. And like, and we were all just like, wow, here, look at them. They're, they're doing it for the gram, you know, like yeah, it, yeah. doing it for Instagram. And, you know, like I understand it's, 
it's exciting to show people um, the cool things you're doing in life, but it's also, I feel like in that split second where you want to show people what you're, what you're doing, you should also think about some unintended consequences that you might be having on that location if you do that. Seems like uh, as uh, as a people, we're kind of losing our connection with the land. Yeah, I mean, I mean how can you get connected when it's all about you? <laughs> That's why well, you know you can. Is there wildlife, or I mean, a landscape photographer? You can sit there by say you're there by yourself, and you're waiting for the sunrise to come up at this beautiful place. I mean, it really humbles you and makes you appreciative of. Absolutely. where you're at in, in the setting. I don't see how you get that, you know? Yeah. Well, it's funny because, uh, the guy that, uh, that took all those people to that spot, he was telling us all, cause we were talking to him later. He was like, yeah, I just really, I really just wanted to show these people like how beautiful and amazing this place is and, and all that stuff. So I think like, I, I feel like, that's like where it starts, but then they don't, there's something that's not clicking because of the whole social media thing that, that it kind of shuts off part of your brain where you're thinking about, uh, maybe this isn't a good idea, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, know. it's weird. Yeah. Like I said, uh, I'm just less prone to go to these popular places anymore. And I mean, that's one of the reasons, um, the other, I mean, it's just like, you know, I teach a lot of workshops, so you got to, it's kind of a balance, right? You have to take them to some of these iconic spots because, you know, it's just what people want. But you get there and uh, some of these places, it's just insane. Like you'll be there an hour or two before the sunrise and there's already a whole <laughs> group of photographers lined up and it gets testy. And I'm like, man, that really isn't the reason we're here, you know? I mean, yep. I don't want to contend with that. And, uh, yep. you know, I mean, it's not so bad up here in Montana and even in Glacier, but, you know, some of the parks and, oh, you know, oh my, like, you know, some of these Canyonlands, delicate, yeah. delicate Arch. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, places like that, it's just getting uh, – Maroon Bells in your yep. neck of the woods. God. We went there a couple of years ago during fall, like two hours before sunrise, and there must have been 300 photographers. And so, you know, while everybody's waiting for a sunrise that might or might not happen, uh, people are like, you know, somebody crowds out a little further into the lake. Oh, you're in my shot. You know, that's all you could hear, you know. And, oh, it's just like, you know. Well, now I, you can't. Now you can't shoot that um, at Maroon Bells. They've actually roped it off. Oh no, kidding! Yeah, they've they they made it to where you can't go down to the shore anymore, and oh and even God. still, even with a rope, with a huge rope, with signs every five feet that says "Do not cross the rope." I have a picture, and it's actually gonna all it'll be posted on Earth Day on my website, but I have a picture that shows like hundreds of photographers on the other side of that rope trying to get their photograph. And I actually emailed the, the wilderness office, uh, the Maroon Bells Snowmass Wilderness Office with that photo. And I said, you guys realize like that rope is not having any, it's not doing its intended purpose to keep people from damaging the shore. Cause that's why they put it up. There's all these social yep. trails and 
There yep. used to be grass growing right up to the edge of the water. And now it's like 15 feet of dirt and mud. And, right. and if, if you've never seen it before that, you just don't know that. And I think that's part of the problem is that people don't have the connection to what it normally should look like. I mean, there's a lot of fragile uh, environments like that. You know, people go out and like you mentioned, the wildflowers, yeah. they're all out there tromping around in the flowers. They're not going to come back up in future years. So. Yeah, people just don't know that though. I mean, I know it's education is part of it, but I think also a lot of it is just there's there's too many incentives and not not enough disincentives to do that behavior. Honestly. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what the solution is. It's like you don't <laughs> want too much you need yeah, too too much enforcement either cuz that's kind of a drag, <laughs> you know, but Totally. I mean, it's just like you can't protect people from themselves. I mean, look at all this stuff that happens at Yellowstone. Right. You know, 500 signs don't stand out here and they go out and they fall through and vaporize. So, you know. Well, it's interesting you say the whole enforcement thing. I think that is one stick that we can hold a, hold in front of people to say, look, if you don't change the way you're behaving – none of us, including you, will be able to revisit this place ever again because it's going to be so enforced and so policed and they're going to put ropes and fences and all kinds of stuff up that you're not going to be able to do this ever again. So is that what you want? Yeah, I know. That's, that's, a, that's a hard one. Uh, you can probably preach all you want and uh, people just get excited about this stuff. So Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. it's a tough one to, to crack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, man. Well, tell tell us a little bit about the workshops that you've got going on. You've got a pretty diverse uh, range of workshops that you've got coming up. And I was really interested cause, because I feel like the places that you're taking people is not your typical iconic kind of spots. It seems like uh, you like to take people to places that are a little bit more secluded and special and and I, I like that. So tell us about what you got coming up. Yeah. Um, well, I guess that goes back to what we were just talking about. Uh, just on a personal level, I, I just don't like crowds and a lot of <laughs> going to a lot of iconic spots anymore. It's just, you know, uh, I, I've done uh, Antelope Canyon. I don't know if you've ever been down there <laughs> a couple a couple times, and I both times I swore never again. You know, and I, I probably will never go there again. It's just so overrun. Uh, it's it's not even enjoyable. Right. So my motto, yeah, it's been like there's a lot of beautiful places to go, and you know, I mean, like I, I always try to break it up and do new stuff because I'm lucky, you know. I, I do smaller classes, like four to eight people at a time, and I, I have a lot of repeats uh, that keep coming back, and they come every year. God bless them. Uh, very loyal. So they don't want to go to the same park. And quite frankly, neither do I. So uh, <laughs> I'm always finding newer places that aren't so well known. And I'm like, hey, it's just as beautiful here without the crowds. And right. they're, they buy into it. And, you know, rightfully so. So, yeah, I mean, I, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I love Teddy Roosevelt in North Dakota. Uh, I do several here in Glacier, which is just makes sense because uh, it's my backyard. 
And, uh, you know, next year I'm doing some new ones. Uh, I'm going to Florida. I've been going there in the winter to my parents' uh, winter there for uh, February. So uh, I've been going to visit them and like, wow, the Everglades are pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> and there's no, it really, there was hardly anybody there uh, and a lot of good bird photography. So I'm like, okay, let's do Florida. Uh, Badlands National Park is a lot like Teddy Roosevelt, just a, a amazing landscape with a lot of wildlife and few, few people. And then, yeah, I feel like the Badlands are super underrated personally. Yeah. I mean, I've done several coffee table books on them and, uh, I, I just find them, they just come, they glow, uh, yes. at the, the good light. Uh, it looked like shit, you know, during the middle of the day, but I mean, most, <laughs> most things do, right. So uh, that's a fun one. And you get big storms come through. Uh, and then, you know, I kind of mix it up. You know, like I've got one on the east side of the Rockies uh, where I live here in the spring. It's full of wildflowers. We go to a working cowboy ranch and I have the guys ride for us with, you know. Oh, cool. So they learn some new skills, you know, how to shoot action and stuff like that. And That's cool. Yeah. And then, you know, I, uh I go to the UP of Michigan about every two years in the fall because, oh, yeah. you know, and that's getting, there's a lot more workshops up there than there used to be, but really, yeah, there's quite a, quite a few, uh, but it's an amazing place with color that rivals any place in the U S and uh, it's consistently good. And plus you have Lake Superior there and, it's it's a remote area as well with a lot of history and uh it's a pretty fascinating place you, you won't come back disappointed so what what's the uh the color is that like the is all those birch trees uh they oh. they have a lot of sugar maple so sugar maple. you're getting a lot of reds and oranges and yellows and yeah there is some birch and aspen and stuff as well but mostly is mostly the maples and wow, and there's lighthouses cool. up there, and you know, people love lighthouses, man. Oh yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I think when I retire, I'll uh, maybe volunteer and go to some remote lighthouse and live in it for a summer. That's funny. Um, yeah, it's. I feel like Upper Peninsula. I don't know. I think it's it's interesting because I, I i always thought like that was kind of undiscovered country but it sounds like there's a lot of people up there now huh yeah i mean maybe it, it's just like we were talking about you know like there's just been a lot of fall photos from there recently and oh, more, there more people are putting it on it's a little harder to get to though so it won't be won't be overrun and there's actually right. i i kind of rotate it between uh, I go to I do the western part, the Keweenaw Peninsula, and then the other years I go further east to Pictured Rocks National Lakeshore. So it's cool. Yeah, it's, it's pretty varied, and uh, yeah, a lot of cool people live up there too. It's, it's a neat place. What's the uh, what's the uh, I don't know how to phrase this, but uh, I know the eastern side of a glacier is all uh, Indian reservation. What what's the access and um, I guess like are you allowed to do a lot of shooting on that side? Is there a lot of ability to camp on that side? What's it like over there? Oh well, I mean the uh, the reservation and the park boundary is actually a little further out in the prairies. 
Okay. So, you know, you just cross into the park and you ha- you're in the park. So it, that's really not an issue. Uh, I think uh, you're supposed to, you should have a permit if you're shooting on the Blackfeet Reservation. And there's a, okay. there's a lot of cool stuff there as well. Uh, but, you know, it's not, not really an issue. But, you know, like the east side of the park has a totally different feel than the, yeah. the west side. It's much more open and more dramatic, in my opinion, uh, less forested. So you got this neat transition between um, yeah. grasslands and mountains, similar to where you, you're, you're Colorado, you know, uh, uh, the front range there. So, uh, yeah, it's quite spectacular, especially in the morning, you know. Good morning. Water. Yeah, when I was studying the maps for Glacier, I I was really drawn to that kind of northeastern section. It looks like there's a lot of great backpacking opportunities up in there. I had my eye on this. Uh, I think there's maybe one or two of them in the park, but it, specifically up in the northeast side, there was a peak there called Pyramid, which looked really interesting oh, to yeah. me just based on the, the valleys that were coming around it. It looked like there was a lot of opportunities for some interesting shots. Yeah, that one's been on my list for years, and I've not yet to get it. Uh, you have to get a backcountry permit and camp a, a certain lake to get the yeah. It looks get the tough. Yeah, and then you have to. I think you have to kind of wade out into the water to get the shot. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> it's it's super cool. I, I've had permits twice, and both times uh, the weather got so bad we couldn't go. So <laughs> like, that sounds right. Yeah. I guess uh, that's still on the to-do list. Well, I don't know about how you feel, but I feel like there's several lifetimes worth of places I'd love to go shoot. But oh, yeah, no, it's, last, here we are. <laughs> you know, that's, you know, that's the great thing. It's like, uh, I'm never going to run out of subject matter. I mean, I know. Yeah, like uh, next this weekend, I'm going to the grand Canyon and hiking down into it and up to the other side and back with some friends. And I, I, I assume you're doing the South Rim down to, uh, yeah, they were going to Cottonwood, which is and, and rancher and, uh, then up the North and back. And then, yeah, the last night at Phantom ranch. So I think it's like 50 miles over three days. So we'll see how my legs do, but, uh, I'm game. Try it. Yeah, you know, I, did, uh, I, I actually rafted, the upper half of the Grand two years ago, and then I hiked out at Phantom Ranch up to the South Rim. That oh, was cool. really sweet. Cool. Yeah. yeah. I've been to Havasu cool Falls uh, years ago, yeah. and that, that was an awesome hike. And uh, so, yeah, I've been been training the last month and getting, nice. and getting lighter and lighter stuff in my pack. So hopefully, right? uh, yeah, I'm not taking a tripod, but uh oh, cool. on on a hike but uh i'll have it up on the rim for a couple of days before we go down there cool. yeah it'll be fun awesome well we're about out of time i have one more question for you uh who who do you think our listeners would really love to hear from on the podcast i've got another montana photographer in mind uh that i think he's a, you would enjoy speaking with uh I don't know if you've heard of him. Uh, he's my age, Donald Jones. He lives. Okay, no, I haven't. He's, well, I'll give. I'll send you a link to his website. The best wildlife and bird photographer, maybe in the country. He's probably 
he's probably had, I don't know, I have to ask him again. I'm sure he's up to like six, five or 600 cover shots. Uh, yeah, wow. he's been prolific and a phenomenal uh, wildlife photographer, somebody who only shoots wild stuff. And his stuff is will blow your mind. Uh, great light and sharp and always interesting. You know, I mean, uh, when you see his site, you'll know. And uh, yeah, he, he'd be, I think you'd really enjoy that from a wildlife and bird perspective. How he gets his shots would be fascinating. I tag along with him just yeah. to try to get the nibbles, you know, because I'm not I'm not in that category. I do it for fun, uh, the wildlife and bird stuff. But uh, yeah, he's yeah. he's he's really amazing. Awesome. Uh, anyone else? Uh, I'm trying to think who uh, who else has a presence on in Montana. Uh, Jason Savage is another, he's a young, about your age, probably. He was one of my protégés. Uh, he used to tag along with, uh, another buddy and I, when we started doing the, the workshops and he's become a really great landscape, uh, and wildlife photographer in his own right. So he, he lives down Excellent. south of Missoula in the Bitterroot Valley. Awesome. Well, those sound like so, yeah, great they, recommendations. Yeah, I'm going to tout my Montana boys. <laughs> hey, why, why not? Yeah. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, we, we, we need a publicity. Nobody nobody hears of us up here. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, I, I hear you guys got some pretty fantastic breweries as well. Oh, yeah. it's uh, We do. And uh, we, actually, there's, there's, a, there's a host of great photographers here. I mean. As you can imagine, any place that's beautiful is going to attract artists. So uh, it's it's really not surprising at all. And a lot of great writers and painters uh, as well. So it's it's just a real vibrant community. Wow. Well, Chuck, thanks so much for joining us on the pad- podcast. I, I, I really appreciate it. Hey, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, it's really, I listened to some of your podcasts earlier and I'm like, yeah, this guy's pretty easy to speak to. So Awesome. Uh, appreciate your uh, smoothness and uh, your questions. Uh, it's been a fun hour and a half here. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again. All right. Well, thanks to uh, Chuck for joining me on the podcast for a really great discussion uh, about the history of ph- landscape photography for the last 25 years. I really, really enjoyed our conversation. I hope you did too. All right. Well, I want to thank our newest patron for supporting the podcast on Patreon. Uh, Robert Weir, thank you so much for joining in at the $5 a month level. I really, really, really appreciate it. And uh, and you guys, too, you can support the podcast. Just head over to patreon.com slash f-stop and listen. Um, and I, I'm really excited. Uh, next week, I am hosting a, a patron-only Google Hangout uh, for, for people that have pledged in at the $20 a month level or higher. We call those our producers. Um, and I think that's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to have some conversations about upcoming guests and upcoming topics that people want to learn more about. I mean, really, when I say you're producers, I mean it. You get to help guide the direction of the show. So thank you so much for your support. I really appreciate that. Um, I also wanted to announce something a little bit new for people supporting the podcast on Patreon starting this week. Um, I'm going to start a weekly feature of Patreon supporters 
photographs over on our Patreon page. So what we're going to do is we're going to do a weekly theme where patrons can submit their photographs based on a theme of the week. And I will pick my favorite submission and talk about it a little bit on the podcast as well as over on Patreon. And I'll include a link. Uh, actually, I'll just include that photograph in the liner notes of the of the podcast also. And maybe, who knows, maybe down the road it'll turn into something a little bit more exciting, like maybe a little contest or um, an award for, for my favorite photos. So we'll try this out and see if people like it. So without further ado, this week's theme is trees in spring so let's see those photos over on patreon uh, lastly uh another really great way to support the podcast is to use our bnh affiliate link uh, which is in the uh, liner notes um, over on my website for the podcast and and that really does help support the podcast as well so if you've got a, a camera purchase or a lens purchase coming up or you're looking to buy some filters uh, just, you know, before you buy on BNH, think, oh yeah, I remember I can support the podcast super passively by just clicking on a link on the podcast website and help, help support the podcast. Um, well, you can also follow us on Instagram as Matt Payne photo or F stop and listen. And I'd also love to see you guys on the Facebook group, um, and see your, see some, some action over there. All right. Well, thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.